Wolf and Zoe. All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is hour one of episode 552. Jason Lingren is with me, and George Mesa joins us for the second time. First time around, we did video games. This time, we're going to do an interesting thing. We're going to take apart the Godzilla movies, which first arrived in our minds in 1954. George was telling me there's been something like 20 of them since 1984. Of course, there was an 84 release which tells us all something uh not too long ago we took apart the movie frequencies to me what we're going to do here is the polar opposite now we're going to get into the kind of blockbustery hollywood ideas but what's interesting about godzilla is of course you have to recognize the relationship between japan and the united states which of course enemies during world war ii and then very 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 quickly fast friends and of course, this is one of the exports, I think, but we'll get into it. Anyhow, welcome, Jason. And a very cool good morning. Yeah, it got cold here too. Say goodbye to my shorts for sure. Uh, I've been trying to scare winter off. I think I'm losing that game. But welcome, George. Welcome back for the second time. What was the first one? 308, did you say? Yes, I'm almost 100% certain of the number. I'll look it up as we're going down the road. Can you tell people if you want to provide a link where they can get a hold of you or find your work? Sure. You can go to thirdeyeedify.com. That's all one word. And you will find my links to all my episodes, my Rockfin exclusives. I have a book coming out probably within the next week, which I'm very excited about. Long time coming. And a lot of other things that you'll find there. George, please tell us the name of the book you have coming out and where it's going to be available. Sure. It's called World War U, and it's going to be on Amazon and eBooks, wherever I can put them. And um, I'm also on Patreon. All right. Just for people hitting the link, Third Eye Edify puts two E's back to back when you write I and Edify together. So just pay attention when you're looking for the link or doing a search. If you don't get there, pay attention to the two E's back to back could be the problem. Anyhow, uh, we're going to start in a place I love to start. Words have meaning. What's in a name? So, George, let's pick up there. What was the original? Was there a switch? Let me ask you this. Did Japan have this monster idea that then somehow kind of ported out to us? Was there a more Japanese spin on the original? Yes, absolutely. And this is certainly the um, best place to start for sure. The name, I think, might be the most telling because Godzilla is a household name. There's no question about it. And a lot of people have a memory of the films as, you know, the really not so great dubbing, the mouths are moving and the words are coming in different places. And I think one of the things I didn't realize as a youngster was how, how different the translations really are and how much they were cutting out of these movies. So the name is Gojira, G-O-J-I-R-A. And it's been debated what, where the name actually derived from. The idea that it could be a gorilla and a whale combined. It was a potential nickname for one of the people on the set. And this was not really a very high budget movie, even though Toho Studios is kind of the Hollywood of Japan, which is another thing that I think is very telling. But if you say it a certain way, you get, think of gorilla as gorilla and you get gojira. It kind of comes out in the same, kind of rolls off the tongue in a similar way. And that's a lot of different ways to think about it, but there's a little bit of debate on where the genuine name came from. But either way, when they brought it here, they called it Godzilla. They put the word God in there, which again, is already a, a big can of worms to open. That might be an entire episode all by itself. But they didn't just change his name when they brought it here. They actually spliced in a very popular actor of the time, Raymond Burr, who a lot of you I'm sure are very familiar with. And they put him into the movie they incorporated him completely into the story and, and essentially changed the story to, to put him in there. They, they re-recorded entire scenes. They did their best to you know, color edit and make it look like it was from the same camera, but it certainly wasn't, and it was very obvious. And I think the main reason was, just like you said, we were suddenly friends afterwards. There was still a good amount of tension. We were only 10 years out from World War II, and the U.S. had a very large part in what happened to Japan which of course can be debated and I think will be a big part of our conversation here. But they wanted us to have it. I always heard that they didn't want us to have it. Oh, they don't want us to have this movie. They don't want us to have their stuff. That's why we get all these crappy dubs, these, these you know, very crappy looking 
SLP VHSs that don't even have the full um, shot in the print, things of that nature. But the name already, switching the name, putting American actors in the original movie, which is, by the way, a very good movie. I certainly am a Godzilla fan. I'm not just some researcher who happened upon this stuff. I'm just very surprised to kind of encapsulate the whole conversation. There's so many people that are completely aware of what companies like Disney and any movie company that that goes through the Hollywood channels or any Netflix special, people have their eyes open. They know that there's tons of propaganda, predictive programming, spell casting in the broadcasting. And Godzilla's no different. There's more in this than I think goes on in a lot of other series, as a matter of fact, in every single movie. So as you can tell, I'm excited to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, so let's let, let's do what we do. So just so everyone catches on, the idea that we're going to express is that there's a hell of a lot of propaganda. And the interesting thing here is this is going to be post-World War II. Uh, two mortal enemies suddenly become fast friends. And for those who don't know the World War II history, the Americans basically move in, right? They move into Japan. And the Americanization is going on. And it's kind of interesting how Japanese uh, the country remained after the fact, but they were certainly influenced to a high degree. But if we take apart the name, according to what you've just told me, isn't it interesting if it was from Gorilla that it did not take them long to pair off with King Kong to get the Gorilla idea back in there. But pulling back to the Americanization, Godzilla, correct me if I'm wrong, this beast comes to be because of nukes. So if that's true, there's your God idea. But I did a quick lookup because, you know, Mozilla, there's a few corporations that use the Zilla. So I did a lookup. The number one return claims that Zilla is a low thorny something cruciferous plant found in the deserts of Egypt and its leaves are boiled in water and supposedly eaten by Arabs. And that's just from the top. But if you do other searches, it does the combination from Godzilla. Do you have any any input on the Zilla idea? I think you're right. It's I, I, the plant I actually didn't know about. That's very interesting. But I think that it really is just a kind of a silly way to reference a dinosaur. Even though it's not a direct dinosaur name, it certainly evokes that feeling because he's really a chimera of sorts. He's really supposed to have originally came from T-Rex, Iguanodon, Stegosaurus, and Alligator. It's a combination of all of those things. After the movie started becoming more and more and, and a big part of the conscious, the, you know, the human conscious altogether, they pretty much just stuck with T-Rex and Stegosaurus mixed together. But you hear the lizard term a lot. And there was even a Hanna-Barbera cartoon with Godzilla. And, you know, had a little like flying Godzilla paired up with him called Godzuki. It was, it was pretty much a comedy. It was pretty silly. Oh, I remember that. That was a Saturday morning cartoon in 1979. Oh, yeah. And he, this is one of the reasons that people think he's green and he's really not. He's, it, it's a rubber, a very heavy, super heavy and dangerous to wear a rubber suit. Dangerous, especially if you're jumping around in a pool. Uh, people have been hurt and almost died several times because of wearing the suit, by the way. But people think he's green. He's really not. He's more of a dark gray rubber suit. And I think that that actually was part of it. So that gives you the lizard impression. There was also a 1998 Godzilla movie from Dean Devlin and Roland Emmerich, who I think are definitely people that, that push propagandas for sure. And he was looking more like an Iguanodon style thing in that movie. Well, there's a claim here as I look through it, that uh, as a result of Godzilla, the Zilla part, became a new meaning that we use to basically mean big and tough. And as an example, they cite that Sears Roebuck, if anyone's old enough to remember, Sears was a big deal for people who are younger. It was a major corporation, but apparently in 77, they came out with a garbage bag and they named it Bagzilla to, <laughs> to imply. And so then it goes on and on. And then there was Hogzilla and Fedzilla talking about the government. So apparently it took on its own life after the fact. Yes. It, and again, they really injected it into the public conscience, just like War of the Worlds did. And there's some War of the Worlds references in some of these movies, by the way, no surprise whatsoever. It's programming. It's programming 101. You enter it into the consciousness and you make sure it's there. And sometimes, as we already know, with things like, let's just be really simple and obvious about it, Federal Reserve, let's say, um, United Nations, these things are put in place for things to be 
taken care of many decades down the line. And Godzilla is actually very, very popular again. There's a new Japanese movie coming out next year called Godzilla Minus One, which is a fake number by all means. So I don't know what the title really means, but that's actually going to be the 33rd Japanese movie for our number of people out there. And there's tons of new American Godzilla movies. And there's lots to discuss with those, but um, I think the original era of movies has the most to dig out. There's also Bridezilla, by the way. If you uh-huh. want. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> right? There's, there's yeah. a lot of, and there you go, you know, negative stuff towards, of course, it's always the woman's fault, right? So I, I don't know. Uh, there's probably endless references to the Zilla thing. And you're right. They, they created the Zilla, and it wasn't even part of his originally intended name. That's just a perfect example of everything that goes on with entertainment right there. Is there one particular uh, place that is now the copyright holder for all things Godzilla that's Japanese, or has that kind of filtered out? Like, is it in the public domain by now? I'm not sure how long it, I don't think it's quite been. No, I don't believe so, as a matter of fact. And if it is, you know, it wouldn't be all of them. There's no way. Criterion, who you might all be familiar with, has been doing some excellent prints of old movies, and they've had a good amount of Japanese movies. They actually did as their 100th release, they did a humongous box set of the original series of Godzilla movies, which took place from 1954 to 75. So the prints are finally being given, the original prints are being used. So because whenever you got a Godzilla movie, it was second, third, fourth generation. And like I said, you'd get a really crappy VHS and half of the frame was missing. You could always tell that there was something missing on the sides of the frames. So I don't think it's public domain. Toho is the company, T-O-H-O. Yeah, I just found that. That's who owns the monster verse, apparently. Monster verse. Yeah, right. And there's that other that other verse. That's a whole nother connection to a lot of the way movies are doing their thing nowadays, Marvel, anything from Disney. So that that's a guarantee that there's overlap there. You would think that Hollywood must own rights at some level because of the number of movies they've pumped. <laughs> it's it's funny that you say that because there was never until nineteen ninety-eight when Dean Devlin and Roland Emmerich stepped in, they got they signed up for three movies in a row. They made their Godzilla, if you want to even call it Godzilla, and and then they didn't continue from there. It was essentially like a Jurassic Park movie. It really wasn't a Godzilla film by any means as far as, the, if you follow the rules in quotes. Is that the Matthew Broderick one? That's exactly right, yep. Oh, yeah, that was kind of... Uh... <laughs> it was fairly lame. <laughs> but really, they, they pushed a lot of Jurassic Park things, and again, that's no surprise. So I've got one for you guys on a hunch. Um, I don't know if you guys remember, uh, I've talked occasionally about the connection between Jewishness and the Japanese. There is absolutely a language connection and there are some other connections. So I jumped over to Hebrew to look at Zilla and here's what I found. Spelled the same, though they drop an H on the end of it, Mm -hmm. but it's still Zilla. Zilla is the second of two wives of Lamech, Mm -hmm. the first in Genesis 4.19. She is the third woman named in the Bible, and it goes on to say, the meaning of the name Zillah may include any of the above things, but as you go down, uh, the name derives from a second verb, and, and they name the verb, but it means to be dark or grow dark or to be in shadow. That's very interesting on a number of levels, actually, because uh, Godzilla is technically a Shinto, God of Destruction. He doesn't have any morality. He's not there to, you know, kill certain humans or kill a certain place, even though he usually ends up in Tokyo, but that's just a locational thing. It's really good time to mention that the first movie is shot in black and white, and it didn't have to be. There was color by then. They did it on purpose for mood. He is very dark and foreboding in the movie. You don't really see him for a while. He just, he attacks places. You'd see a little foot or a tail. You don't see the whole thing. They reveal him slowly. It, it resembles the no theater in a certain level, if anyone knows anything about the No Theater from Japan, N-O-H, that would be a whole other conversation. But he really is, it, it, because of the nature of how they filmed it, he's often seen as a, almost as a shadow. And the, the, and the scene, he's always attacking you know, at night until the very end. And that really gives that impression of exactly what you just said. That's very interesting. And I, I think that it's really worth mentioning too, that people that know a little bit about it, they think the overall consensus is that the movie was created as Godzilla versus us because we bombed them. And it's, it really isn't that. This is about anti 
the the wrong and evil doings of man in general. This bomb should never have happened. I mean, we'll we'll put the bomb in quotes based on all the research you guys have done to prove otherwise, and it's certainly agreeable to me. That idea, by the way, is reflected in the Blue Oyster Cult song, Godzilla, what you just said. What is it? History shows again and again something the nature shows the folly of men. I don't know, but it's basically a a version of what you're stating. The follies of man. That's exactly right. Isn't it interesting that Blue Oyster Cult knew (laughs) back in the 70s? I would think so. And I remember very well, now that I'm 41, my very first tape that was given to me, because all I did is listen to my parents' records at first. I thought my uncle was the singer of ZZ Top. I didn't. Even, I thought his voice was the same. And my, my dad came home with Blue Oyster Cult, Some Enchanted Evening as a live album because it had Godzilla on there. So it's the first album I ever owned. I've been into this my whole life. I've always been watching these movies. And this really, the impetus for this is I was actually going to do this on my own show, but I was thinking to myself, like, this is a crow episode. I've been saving this for you guys. I thought this was going to be really good for us to talk about. And we haven't even gotten into the meat of it yet. But there's another interaction with American culture, household name, yeah, that Blue Oyster Cult, definitely. And if, if Godzilla, I would say, is cult status. So there's another overlap there, too. It was a big song. I mean, I'm guessing Jason, well, I, I, that must have been one of the songs you learned early on. But when Godzilla came out, uh, it's in the 70s. I don't know exactly when. If I had to guess, it would be, I don't know, 77, maybe, I'm guessing. Yeah, that sounds right. It was airplayed all the time. It was a big deal for a while. I mean, what, what do you remember about BOC, Jason? Uh, well, I definitely remember them really well. I'm actually looking it up now because I wanted to see what year this came out. My older brother was really into the monster movies, so I started watching them as a very small child. And then when George mentioned the cartoon, I was really big on it, as so many kids were at the time. The Saturday morning cartoons were a big deal for quite a few years, and I absolutely remember the Godzilla cartoon, so I watched it all the time, and I would have only been like maybe six at the time. Well, I was right. It was November 77. Uh, the single actually gets released in February of 78. It was recorded in 77. And of course, the label was Columbia. Right. The writer was Buck Dharma, uh, who was a, a member. I think he may still be alive. I'm not sure. Uh, but isn't it interesting that the ideas that you express now, looking back, having you know, paid attention all this time. Uh, Blue Oyster Colt wrote it in, in 77. So, I mean, there's a there there. There is. And the, the entire series as a whole really does have an arc to it where the first movie is dead serious. And I really think that it's actually a very good movie and really worth anyone's time to watch the original, of course, with subtitles, not the Raymond Burr American version. You'll find some very, it's, it's very moving. In a certain way, it's 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 a very good movie. It's actually well acted overall, and I think that everyone should see it if this interests anyone in the slightest bit. Because most people don't get the first movie; it does not shown to us as much. And that brings up a few really interesting things. Because I, I want to mention a few positives before we get into all these negatives. Because me as a fan, this this is you know borderline painful to talk about. I feel bad, but I have this information and I want to bring it out. You know. Some of the movies are very good. Some of them have very good themes, anti-corporation. However you feel about pollution, it's not a good thing to pollute, whether it's killing the world or not. And there's plenty of climate change references, very deep ones in some of these movies, plenty of other things as well. Some of these movies are great and they're worth watching. And the, the message is very often, let's make this world a better place. Because of course, the nature of the first movie is so dark, but right away after the third movie came out, the third movie was King Kong versus Godzilla. So they got the rights from RKO to use King Kong. And from then on, the costumes got sillier. Everything was color. It was more fun and energetic and, and fast-paced. It was closer to Western-style film than Eastern, where the first movie is clearly paced as an Eastern Asian film, for sure. The idea of appealing to kids early on proves that the series was meant to cater towards to get these things in front of kids' eyes, to talk about things like climate change, things like there's even transgender and there's even you know, potentially, we'll get to it, potentially a, a male having a birth in there and lots of other things. They wanted to have this and they still are put, it's still here. There's still new movies coming out, constantly new movies. And um, there was another very interesting aspect is that after 9-11, right after it, they stopped showing, they were on TV a lot by this point, actually, especially when the um, sci-fi channel came out. So 
as soon as that happened, they stopped showing these movies because there's tons of tall buildings being crumbled to the ground and disintegrated into nothing, may I, may I add, hint, hint. But the early decision to appeal to children, I think, was a very big telling aspect of all this. And the Hanna-Barbera cartoon is a clear indicator of this as well. And how much did the uh, plot change? You mentioned that twice now. That seems to be quite significant. Like, what, what's the differences, the main plot differences between the Japanese version of the original film and then the Americanized version of it? And how long did it take to come out here? It was two years later for the very first one. And then eventually the translation started coming a little quicker because they were in theaters all over the world. In Germany, his name's Frankenstein, for example, things like that. And, he, you know, France, my dad grew up in Colombia in his earlier years, and he saw Rodan there, which was another film from the same company. And overall, the translations, the dubbed translations, it's the nature of dubbing. I wouldn't say that it was a nefarious plot. They wanted to make sure that anti-American sentiment was gone. And they often actually have the United Nations and the American Air Force and Navy doing things in the movies as a kind of like a, I guess, just a nod to the idea of the United Nations, which we all know is definitely not what it is stated to be. There's even one movie, there's plenty of outer space movies right, right before and after the moon landing. And they put a triple flag up, America, Japan, and United Nations, all in one flag, right on the moon, just for you to see, of course, why not, right? Which one was this? This is Invasion of Astro Monster 1965, which was technically their second one that had outer space themes. But the first one that they actually had outer space aliens who helped humans travel to their planet and astronauts, everything. And they're already getting the UN in there. Here, here's something. So I did a quick look up on the Blue Oyster Cult lyrics, which most people, you know, with purposeful grimace and a terrible sound, he pulls spinning high tension wires down. Helpless people on the subway train scream bug-eyed as he looks at them. And then everyone knows the song. He picks up a bus and he throws it back down as he wades through the buildings towards the center of town. But there's a whole verse here that is in Japanese. Yes. So I tried to do, uh, maybe you know better than I do, but I did the on the fly uh, translation here. So it says, Ringji news, I'll give you something. Ringji news, I'll give you something. God is headed towards Ginza Human. Please help me. Please help me. Wow, that's far more aligned with the actual theme of the very first movie compared to the rest, which is, again, sort of like a fun song for kids and adults to get into. It's not, you wouldn't know that unless you knew the translation. That's interesting. I'm not sure that it's right. I did two translations and Google gave me that one. The other one didn't look close. And just to close off the musical idea, on the B side, apparently, of the Blue Oyster Cult album from 1977, where the lead single was Godzilla, the B side is Nosferatu. So I guess they mm. were feeling monsterish. Yeah, but isn't it, like it. <laughs> yeah, isn't it interesting? Like when I was a kid, I was big into the horror films, the Hammer you know, the monster films. I used to build the models when I was like, I don't know, eight and things like this. But Japan is jumping on the bandwagon, right? So uh, America is pumping out all these monster movies uh, in the early 50s and actually all the way back to the 30s. And Japan gets in on it. That's right. Because a lot of the movies that preceded this from America, not including King Kong, because that is a monumental achievement for 1933, I dare say. That was something. But they had a lot of, it was the age of the nuclear monsters. They had large spiders. They had large grasshoppers. They had the 50-foot woman and all this other stuff. So they had nuclear-infused monsters that were pretty much just regular things because they could film them easily. So if I'm right in what I've said, that nukes don't exist as described, there's the proof in the pudding uh, that media is working overtime to get your mind to accept the power, the almost godlike power of being able to morph, you know, even the Simpsons do it with their three-eyed fish. Sure, there's no question. And this this series really does, you know, there's always a mention of it, of the bomb, in quotes, but the first few tend to harp on the topics a little more, but the very first one puts such a serious spin on it that if you weren't afraid, you will be after this, especially if you didn't live through it, because if you were, let's say you were born when the war ended, now you're 10 years old, you get to see this movie. You will be very afraid of nuclear technology, big time. It's a. It's supposed to be a scary, frightening movie, and uh, to answer, I didn't quite answer Jason's question about the translations. I think that certain things are changed. Even the ideas of brother and sister 
in the plot are switched around in the dubbing sometimes. The, the dubbing is often achieved best when it looks like they're saying the words. So they actually have to change words and vowels to make sure it matches the mouth better and the phrasing works with the rhythm of the actor or actress. But there is certain times, especially in uh, 1964's Ghidra the Three-Headed Monster, there is this princess who jumps out of an airplane by some psychic connection with some invisible spirit uh, right before the plane explodes. She lands in the water and she suddenly thinks she's a Martian and she has these psychic abilities. But she's not a Martian. She's a Martian in the American version. In the Japanese version, she's Venusian. So they actually switched the gender of the planets in the dubbed version. Now that didn't have to be done for the rhythm of the words. That was a very deliberate inversion as we often see. And again, tip of the iceberg stuff, there's so much more like that going on in these movies. It's unreal. Do you feel like that this movie, I mean, what do we even call it? A, an international franchise at this point. We're talking about a, a, a monster that came to be in movies in 54 and up to the modern time, they're just pumping these out. But is this an example of the, the idiocracy idea? Do you feel like the original movie, the intent was to entertain children and that what we've seen over its evolution is that what was once meant for children is now aimed at adults. I think that's a very large theme for almost all of the entertainment in the West. I see so many people, and there's, there's nothing wrong with this. It's not their fault either. But so many people are into the things that I was into when I was 5 or 10 or 15 years old. And then they're 50 years old and they don't have any new interests. They're still into the same exact band. They're still into the same exact movies. I'm starting to rewatch these now because I've got uh, two amazing stepkids that are 10 and, and 14 and, and, and the other kids of mine are two and three and they're you know, watching them here and there. I've had the chance to rewatch th- these movies with a brand new eye, but I wouldn't have just turned it on just because I'm a Godzilla fan. I have my collection. That's it. I think entertainment around here does a really good job of making sure that you stick to what you know and never find anything new, essentially. And that's why when you go into the toys aisle of any store, you know every single toy that you see is something you know. Even the wrestling figures are the same as the ones from back then. Um, If you go to look at the newest movies, it's everything that was around 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago. The Marvel Universe is still the same. There's still Pokemon. There's still all these things that were popular a long time ago. They don't go away. They won't let it go away. There's still new Godzilla coming out. Mario Brothers movie just came out. They want to make sure that you still see everything that the same stories, the same concepts, because the way that they stick these these programming aspects into the mythological aspects, it's very it's very smartly done. Of course it is. And that goes for the live action remakes too. Didn't get to catch the cartoon where you were younger. We got a live action remake that just came out. And it, it also lowers the parents' guard because there's tons of remakes of shows coming out, Transformers, uh, Paw Patrol, and they're sticking transgender characters in there now. If you sure grew are. up with it, right? Sorry. If, yeah, exactly. If you grew up with those things and then you see that there's a brand new one, you would, oh, great, my kid can watch this. You turn it on and walk away. Suddenly they think everyone's a she-they. And it's a genius idea to keep the old things still in our faces. And that's a big part of what you said. They're all failing though. Every single one of them. Every time they do that, it fails. Yeah, it's right. But it doesn't, it's not about financial gain anymore, I think. Right. Because right. That, that's why, why would Target have done what they did with that right. whole thing? And, and, you know, that movie, Don't Look Up, it flopped at the box office. It doesn't matter. They don't even care if it makes money. They just need to get the message out there and, and hope that because it's on Netflix, you just click on it and walk away for your kids to watch it. Perfect. I'm so glad that, that you, so few people were all stuck because, and, and the trap is that we all still have to pay our bills. So yeah, money's important, but for these types of things, they don't give a damn about the money. It's all about the programming. So basically, if you guys are ready, I want to jump into the actual films. But if I'm seeing this correctly, it means the first one called Gojira can't, comes out on 11-4. 1954 but at the same time there's a series that is created that runs from 54 to 75 is that right well the the collections of movies have been separated into eras and they often are with like a certain prime minister or something or a certain um oh, i can't think of the name right now but this is the showa era ah. followed by the heisei era 
and then followed by the millennial series, for example, because they just get bracketed into certain things. Also, think about it this way. The same, there was always that same Godzilla actor at first, and these guys had to be like really strong, you know, physically fit kung fu people or wrestlers, people that could actually handle walking around in these rubber suits that were heavier than any chain mail you could buy. And the same team of directors, the composer, the special effects editor, these were all, there was a dream team at first. And then once they kind of came out of their place, they stopped for about 10 years and they started a whole new, whole new era, kind of started from scratch almost, as a matter of fact. And uh, it's worth mentioning that they actually have a name for the way they make their miniatures called tokusatsu. And they really respect the art form. And I think personally, yeah, sure, I'm a Godzilla nerd, but I personally think that these miniatures are far superior to other ones in a lot of ways. And I think for anyone who is interested to know about this exact thing, things like space landings, things like any kind of fake news or any kind of something that just doesn't look right, it could be miniatures. And because I have such an eye for them because of these movies, I catch miniatures all the time when they're being passed off as real, particularly with the the newest images of Earth from space with the Artemis mission, for example. That is a miniature. There is no question in my mind that that is a miniature. And I, my eye is very keen to miniatures because of this set of films. So I think that's a benefit kind of looking on the other end of things now. Do you know, so if I remember correctly, there was a period of time when they were recognizing that filming miniatures just looked too fake. And I don't remember exactly, but there was something about the camera focal length or the lens and they finally figured it out. Was it the Japanese that did that during these films? Do you know? My impression that it is, my understanding is that it is, where they had yeah, certain lens, they would do lower shots so the monster seemed higher. They also slowed it down a bit, which comes right back to the moon landing um, footage of them you know, jumping around that regular speed, looks totally normal, and then, then they slow it down, it doesn't. So they're using the same tricks, no question. But without slowing it down, it doesn't look quite right. Because picture, every water scene was filmed in the same exact bathtub at Toho Studios. And they managed to really make some of these waves look like crashing waves on a real coastline. They made some stormy scenes look pretty legitimate. And I, again, I don't think I'm coming from a fan level. I, I'm looking at it with very critical eyes. So they, they did. They found a way. You know, they found a way with the editing and everything. And there's certain camera, sure, it's a certain lens and the height of where it's being filmed from perspective, things that we're all very keen to now for lots of reasons. Yes, I believe that they really did do this because it's, it's not like this for anything else especially when there's miniatures, even in, you know, like Running Man or other movies that I can think of from the sci-fi there, their miniatures don't have the same look to them. So I just did a quick look up on miniatures and apparently they're going to cite a trip to the moon in 1902. That's, you know, George Melier. Oh, the French movie? Yeah. Yeah, that's one of the earliest movies. But then they add in uh, some landscapes to Lord of the Rings and Wizard of Oz. Mm-hmm. But, uh, oh, here it is. Depth of field. That's what I was thinking depth of. Depth of field, right? Just, right. So the F-stop needs to match the depth of field in the miniature world. There's there's a whole bunch here. But what do you think, Jason? Do you want to start getting into the actual films themselves? Let's do it. Well, let's let's do this. We're about to jump in. We're going to start in 54 with the film called Gojira. But each of us, let's each of us add, what are some of the propaganda and the ideas that are being inserted into the world consciousness? I'll start. Dinosaurs, right? That's got to be released. George? The concept of nuclear bombs. And what they can do. Jason? Well, if I was pulling it from my memories as a child, I would say mass destruction being rotted humanity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the idea that we're just ants, right? People are insignificant, these kinds of ideas. But actually, now that I'm looking at the notes, we're going to get through each of these things. So, George, are you ready to pick up in 1954 with Gojira? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. The opening scene of the movie is pretty impactful, it's pretty important. And there's a ship called the Bingo Maru. And it's, 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 and you don't know this by watching the movie, but it's, it's near the Bikini Atoll, which is obviously a very important place in the history of nuclear ideas, uh, a place where a lot of testing was supposedly done. And they see a huge flash in the water. You don't see the monster, you just hear it. And by the way, the monster was made by rubbing rubber gloves over the strings of, a, of a, an upright base, which I think is a really cool idea. So there's a big flash of light. 
representing a nuclear test. And the boat is totally canned out, except for one guy survives and says there's a monster there. And, and it's based on you know, something that had happened around that time. So they were making sure that they referenced something that, that had happened in reality. It, it, that was actually the inspiration. There was a recent incident in 1954 that had happened. It wasn't necessarily only based on the drums that were bop, the, the bombs that were dropped around that time. So as we move along, we find out that there's a monster hiding in the water. And shout out to a guest that you had recently, Symbolic Studies. We, I had him on my show. We talked about how maybe Cthulhu can be kind of put into the spirit of an idea of a water, a monster coming out of the water. But I also want to mention that in this movie, when they start to describe how the monster is, how he was born, or how he had possibly survived since the prehistoric era, they mentioned suspended animation. And I think this is a, a topic that comes up a lot as you read more and more into some of the other movies. But they go into this whole idea of, you know, Big Bang, the Earth was just a molten mass, kind of, if they talk about the formation of the Earth, as they talk about how Godzilla may have survived prehistoric era. So there's much more than just a nuclear reference here. They're going in on all the big topics that you guys and, and others have talked about, trying to get people's idea, uh, trying to bring people awareness up to what's going with these things. And you know, the monster does his thing. He goes around, he makes some destruction. He, come, he comes back a few times. He comes back twice. Maybe that's a reference to both bombs, as a matter of fact. And there is a little love triangle going on in this movie as well between a woman who has to marry a scientist, but she doesn't necessarily want to because they grew up as friends together. And then she has her actual love interest as the, as the third person. It's worth mentioning that this scientist has an eye patch over his right eye. And there are actually one eye references several times throughout the series where Godzilla or another monster gets hit in the eye and they put their hand over that eye and there's a perfect zoom in right on their face with the hand over the eye. Much like you'll see people like Dolly Parton lately doing it and so many other artists, very unfortunate that we lose so many artists to this, just a taste of, of what's in there. But the, the concept of the nuclear weapon is brought up enough but there's more importantly scenes of people dying because of it. There's scenes of people expecting to die and huddling their family together. So the passionately created imagery of what people may have went through with whatever did happen around that time, and I say this with the utmost amount of respect um, as far as what had happened, there's a lot of reasons to debate exactly what did it, but something did of course happen and people did die. I wanted to mention that as well. But that's generally where the first movie goes overall. If you watch it, you'll get a little more, but the idea of nuclear bombs, the idea of a dinosaur that survived the prehistoric era that was mutated by nuclear bombs, and then they actually go into the creation of the planet and show little, you know, they're, they're not shown off as real, but they show little miniatures, dinosaur coming out of an egg, fiery lakes, and things like that, the earlier, supposedly earlier days of our world after the Big Bang. So there's another there's another layer added with the Big Bang idea. Um, Jason and I have covered quite a bit on the Bikini Atoll, and common sense gets you there. To this day, I think the last thing I saw, just so people know, the Bikini Atoll was supposedly a big nuclear testing site, and that it is radioactive. And we, when I was young, it was like you can't go back for a hundred thousand years. Now it's something they've changed the half life idea. It's shorter now, but Hmm. Not too long ago, they released another thing trying to show, I think it was a shark that had mutated due to the uh, toxic nature of all the nuking. And that was in response, from my point of view, to all the people who were using the Bikini Atoll, showing that the nuke idea just logically is fallacious, doesn't work. And as an example of this, you're told you got to wear a badge and get off. You can be there for some certain amount of time. But if you drank water or ate one of those coconuts, that's it. You're getting cancer and you're dying. Well, what are all the crabs, all the coconut crabs? What are all the fish living on? You know, they're eating all these things. And so when you logically apply what's gone on, and here we come back to 1954, where there's a movie that has included the Bikini Atoll to subconsciously firmly cement the idea of nukes and the power 
and everything else attached to it. And that was a lot of words. I mean, would you add anything there, Jason? I think we've covered the Bikini Atoll at least two, three times. Oh, yeah. Where else is a better choice to uh, go to an island where all these terrible things are going on? I mean, it's the perfect choice. Except cells, you know, why is it the Bikini Atoll? But anyhow, I kind of want to read the bullet points as as you laid them down, George, because it's a good synopsis. Do you, do you guys want to do that or do you just want to cover as we're doing? That's fine. I, I think whatever, however we approach it, we'll hit a ton of topics for most of these movies. All right. You want to do it, Jess? You want me to do it? Gojira 1954, just under the Showa series. So Gojira 11-4-1954. Nuclear bombs, dinosaurs, reptile, hybrid, mutated from nuclear weapons, oxygen destroyer. No direct blame towards the United States. Inspired by a recent boat that traveled too close to the Bikini Atoll and was considered a third nuclear incident to them. The entire scene is dedicated to showing how the Big Bang started life on Earth to explain Godzilla. Relation to no theater as seen early in the movie. The United States version spliced in Raymond Burr and greatly altered scenes and translation as usual for the series. When they did the translation early on, do you feel like it drastically changed the storyline? In other words, were the Japanese audiences getting a vastly different meaning or was it a slightly different meaning? This particular one, and only this particular one, the very first one, is the most interesting one because they left the scenes that they did leave from the original, they left the original voice and the original Japanese without subtitles. They chose not to put subtitles. So they were hiding certain things. There's a very particularly moving scene. Uh, I think it's the second time he shows up. He's destroying things. There's fire everywhere. Buildings are crumbling everywhere that you look. And this woman grabs uh, two or three of her kids. They huddle in between these two buildings. And she says, we're about to meet your father very soon. You know, um, implying that he died from the bombs and that they are, you know, but you, you see this and you don't even see what they're saying. And if you don't go sleuthing around, you're not going to get a, a nicely subtitled version very easily until maybe late 80s, 90s. So they spliced him in. They, they changed the entire story to a guy who shows up to do news reporting. And it's hard to say how much they really changed more than what they left out. They left out certain scenes. And it wouldn't have mattered so much because overall, unless you knew Japanese, you wouldn't have known what was going on in the Japanese scenes for this particular movie. Do you feel like it was cultural maybe? Because at that point, uh, the cultural ideas would have been vastly different. Uh, the Americanization was only, what, 10 years, uh, little less than 10 years, the Americanization. So I'm wondering how much of it might have been cultural. It is. It is. There's a lot of times when, and you know, people know that Japanese entertainment is extremely popular here, especially with manga and anime. And a lot of times, there's tons of cultural innuendos things that we would have no idea why they would say words in those combinations, but they have to change them to something that we would say. Like maybe, I'm just thinking of a silly one, like rise and shine. That's just one of those things we say. They have those things too. We don't know what they are. And if they were to translate it directly, you'd actually not have any clue what they're saying. So yes, they do have to make, they do have to fudge the numbers a little bit, of course. But there's many minutes missing from a lot of the American versions. And a minute even is a long time of cuts, of quick cuts, you know? So they, they do cut certain things. They want to make sure there's less, again, any anti-American sentiment that may be partially gained from witnessing the words or from seeing the actions, even if it isn't that. If you may get that impression, they got rid of it, for example. You know, it's interesting. We are coming up on the top of the first hour. And just for everyone listening, as we have shifted how we're going to deliver the podcast, one of the things we're going to do is we're not going to artificially force hour two to be exactly an hour. In other words, if there's reasons to continue to cover, um, we're not just going to lop it off at an hour anymore. And having said that, to pull back around here, this is crazy, man. I just did a lookup. They're claiming, I got to make, this is 1954. This is Wikipedia information. And they're they're not calling it Gojira. They're calling it Godzilla. But they're claiming the budget was $100 in 54 yen and they're claiming the box office was 2.8 million um i I mean is this right yeah they they made another one two years later and then they stopped 
for about six years before King Kong versus Godzilla. They were done, essentially. And this is how the story goes. There could be a lot more to it. But they were done. And then they said, how are we going to, what are we going to do? Let's appeal to kids. Let's get King Kong. We'll have the entire world watching. Which is exactly what happened. So it was a, if it was not a provoked concept from some higher up, it was a genius move. And they managed to keep the original dream team. And so that they that it was still being made by the same people. So it's all the same heart and soul. But the comedy started going up in these the amount of comedy, you know, slapstick or otherwise. It was a different world once King Kong jumped in for sure. And we'll we'll definitely talk about that. You gotta wonder. I have mixed feelings about seeing 311, which is where I marked the the start of Covidius Minimus, but the original release dates listed from the Toho distributor of the original 1954 Godzilla is November 3. So there's 311, 1954, which is also, if you want to run it backwards, a 911 encode. But I'll tell you what, we're going to wrap up our one. We've we've got quite a bit to get through here, which we will do. Uh, is there anything you want to add in, Jason, before I wrap up? No, but you know, it's funny. I, when I first heard this topic, I was wondering just how much we could get out of it. But I mean, we really haven't even got into the notes yet, and we've already gotten That's through power one. So, yeah, there is a lot more here than I would have originally thought. You know, it, it never ceases to astonish me the power of particularly film and music to push agendas, to hook ideas into subconsciousness. And when George brought Godzilla forward and I saw the notes, I was just like, yeah, we got to do this because I, it's for one thing, I don't watch modern movies. So I've kind of fell off the radar. But as a young person, I remember, I loved these these films when I was young. George, is there anything else you want to get in? And please share uh, your contact information, which will also be in the top comment when this goes live as episode 552. Oh, thank you very much. Yes, thirdeyeedify.com. And just like uh, Crow said, there's two E's in the middle. A lot like when you do his website, he's got two R's. So definitely be aware of that. And I have my exclusives on Rockfin and I have everything else on YouTube, of course. And I also want to mention something we were going to say at first and we didn't get to it is that my wife is a doula. And when you had Marin Green on for the very first time, I, I heard that one. I, I guess I was in the car or something. I came home and I immediately put it on for her because I'm like, you have to hear everything this person is saying. And because of that, we have created an incredible bond with her and her amazing family. And my wife is now a student midwife in the indie birth program that Marin runs. So we would like to, you know, thank you personally for that. We met her because of your show. It's an incredible connection. And there's also a really interesting, you know, you just had Michelle Lundquist and Mario Garza on, right? Yeah. And I've had him on my show and my wife has been on my show and she's been on Michelle's Healing Home. So it's a funny coincidence that this is all happening around the same time. I thought that was pretty awesome. I think the thanks is owed from us to you because you're doing. Uh, It's one thing for us to do our best to get valid and valuable information out, but you're acting on it and that's what changes the world. Maybe we plant the seed, but beyond that, thank you. But I'm going to wrap up our one. Uh, We're not going to artificially clip off. We're going to get through what we have to get through. So I'm going to wrap up hour one of episode 552. Hour one is free to everybody at crow777radio.com. That is C-R-R-O-W-777 radio.com. Members know to log in for the full two hour or two hour plus episode. They get access to all the forums. They can create new forums. They get access to comments under every episode, which are typically specific to the episode, and they get free access to the two-hour film called Shoot the Moon. They can watch it any old time they like. It's got 10 awards out in the world, and I've been getting a lot of email on it. I didn't. Ex- I, I guess I'm starting to realize it had a, a bigger effect than I thought for the first year that it was out in the world. Anyhow, with that, I hope to see everybody logged in as a member and participating with us in hour two. And I'd like to wish everybody out there a happy, healthy, and higher-minded new era. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. There it is, man. Cheers.
belief is the enemy of knowing.